So uh, yes, so we're celebrating Dharma Day, uh, which is a very important Buddhist festival. Um, you probably know. Uh, what happened is the Buddha gained enlightenment about two and a half thousand years ago. And then sometime later, it, it took him maybe two months to sort of absorb the experience of gaining enlightenment. And then he began to teach. And we celebrate Dharma Day as the first day he began to teach. So it's obviously a really important festival for us Buddhists. So um, we should be happy. Um, that's why we're celebrating, just to sort of get together and celebrate the fact that the Buddha did teach. So just imagine for a moment what, it, what life might have been like for us if he had not taught. Yeah. On the very simple and immediate level, we wouldn't be here today together, so we wouldn't have got to know each other. We wouldn't be enjoying Sangha in the way that we do. And our lives would be quite different, wouldn't they? I mean, mine would be completely and utterly different if uh, the Buddha had not taught the Dharma. And uh, just think a little bit, a bit later on today, we're going to do some reflections and just maybe reflect a little bit on um, how the Dharma has changed your life in small ways, perhaps in really big ways. So. Uh, we're celebrating that the Buddha taught and feeling grateful, I suppose. We're feeling a great deal of gratitude for the fact that he did, because he nearly didn't, you know. Did you know that? He nearly didn't teach. When he thought about it a couple of months after enlightenment, and he thought, will people understand this? <laughs> they won't understand it. It's too difficult. So he thought, much better for me if I just stay where I am and just meditate and enjoy myself for the rest of my life. But a god, Brahma Sahampati, came along and persuaded him. He said, no, no, you must teach. So we should also be very grateful to Brahma Sahampati, shouldn't we? Um, Brahma Sahampati comes up again in a moment. Um, he's uh, one of the kings of the gods and uh, he is very, very instrumental in the Buddha teaching the Dharma. So thank you, Brahma Sahampati. So, um, Yes, so I'm giving two talks today and we're going to do some reflections and some meditations and at the end of the day, uh, in the evening, Diamala's going to give a talk and we're going to do a celebratory puja. So lots of good things. Um, and it's just gone out of my head what I was going to say next. Teapot. No, that comes later. Teapot comes later. Um, so I'm going to begin... Um, with a text. Now this is a really interesting text and it comes just after the Buddha gained enlightenment. So this is before he even began to teach. It's called the Gaurava Sutta. Um, uh, Sutta, as you know, is discourse and Gaurava is an interesting word. Uh, it comes from the word Gauru, um, which, is, which is connected with the word Guru. And Gauru means um, weighty, significant. Yeah, it's a really interesting word. So you can see how the word guru came about because what the word guru really means is someone who is weighty and significant, someone who has got gravitas, someone who you will listen to because of the significance of their understanding, their deep understanding of life. So that's what guru really means really someone who as far as you're concerned has great weight and significance in your life so this is a very interesting sutta based on this idea so I'll read you the first bit I have heard that on one occasion 
when the Blessed One, that is to say the Buddha, was newly self-awakened, so very, very recently gained enlightenment. He was staying at Urevala on the bank of the Naranjana River at the foot of the goat herd's banyan tree. The banyan tree which later became known as the Bodhi tree. So soon after his enlightenment. Then, while he was alone and in seclusion, this line of thinking arose in his awareness. That's interesting, isn't it? This line of thinking. So he spent a, a number of weeks reflecting on his experience, understanding more and more deeply the significance of it. So it's as if enlightenment didn't happen in a second. It kind of did, but then the implications and the ramifications continued to reverberate through the Buddha's mind for weeks afterwards, and he did a lot of reflecting. So this line of thinking or reflection arose in his awareness. One suffers if dwelling without reverence or deference, yeah? without garava, without some kind of devotion to someone. Yeah? One suffers if dwelling without reverence or deference, garava. Now, on what Brahmin or contemplative can I dwell in dependence, honouring and respecting him? So this is really interesting, isn't it? So very soon after the Buddha's enlightenment, he's totally enlightened. He's still looking for someone he can look up to. And this is, if you look back to his time before enlightenment, when he was trying to gain enlightenment, he had a number of teachers, didn't he? He went from teacher to teacher and he learned everything that they had to teach and they told him look you know everything you've realized everything that I've realized now and they offered him to co-lead their Sangha with him but the Buddha still felt there was further to go so he didn't leave these teachers behind with a sense of oh you're no good he was really looking for someone to look up to so when he gained enlightenment he was still looking so this is really interesting isn't it still looking for someone to look up to and what I find interesting about what he says to himself is one suffers if one lives without reverence and deference. It's a form of suffering to have no one to look up to. Which is very, very different from much of our society, isn't it? With our very strong insistence on everyone is equal, no one is more developed than anyone else, no one's any wiser than anyone else, we're all equal. This is a very, very different understanding of life, isn't it? The Buddha said we suffer if we've got no one we can look up to. So that's worth reflecting on this, isn't it? Why? That's the question that immediately occurred to me. <clears throat> Why do we suffer if we've got no one we can look up to? Perhaps you can reflect on this later on in the day. My own feeling about this is that um, it's in the nature of life to need to go beyond where you are at the moment. It's in the nature of life to go beyond, to go higher, to go further than you have. Life's okay, as it is, maybe. For us, of course, it is okay, isn't it? We've got enough to eat, we've got enough to clothe ourselves, we live probably in a, in a shelter that's warm in the winter and coolish in the summer, if we ever had a summer that is, but keeps the rain off at least. So we've got everything we need, so life's okay, but we still feel, don't we, that life isn't okay in another sense. 
that even though we've got enough to eat and we're looked after and so on, we've got everything we need to live, we still feel the need to go further. And this is what made the Buddha leave home, wasn't it? He had everything he needed. He was a young man, he was a prince, he had everything he could possibly want. But he still felt this... Mm. <laughs> he still felt this sense of... <clears throat> No, there's further to go. And what was the fourth sight he saw? You know, the first three were an old person, an ill person, and a dead person. The fourth one was a holy man, wasn't it? Someone that he could revere. So his spiritual life began with this, and it continued right through to his enlightenment. And then it continued after his enlightenment. He was still looking for someone he could look up to. So that again says something interesting about enlightenment, doesn't it? Because it's often in the text put as the end point. When you get there, there is no more need to practice. There's no more to be done. So that's the end. But this text suggests that it's not the end, that it's another beginning, yet another beginning. There's further to go. The Buddha was looking for someone he could look up to. But he had a problem, didn't he, there? Because he looked around with his divine eye and he, he thought, it would be for the sake of perfecting an unperfected aggregate of virtue. I'm sorry about the rather technical language here. An unperfected aggregate of virtue that I would dwell in dependence on other Brahmin, Brahmin or contemplative honouring and respecting him. Let me put in that in plain English. The only person he could honour and respect is someone who is further along the path than he was. And he couldn't find anyone further along the path. So he goes into virtue. Is there anyone more virtuous than me? No, he couldn't find anyone. Is there anyone more absorbed, more able to absorb their mind than I am? He couldn't find anyone. Is there anyone wiser? No, he couldn't find anyone and so on. He went through a list of qualities and he, he just couldn't find anyone. He wanted to find someone who was more advanced than him that you could look up to. And in the end, he couldn't find anyone. Here he was using his divine eye to look around the whole world, the whole universe. Couldn't find anyone. So that was his problem. So then he came up with a solution. What if then I were to dwell in dependence on this very Dharma to which I have fully awakened, honouring and respecting it? Yeah, so the Dharma. So he couldn't find anyone that he could revere and honour and go Garu uh, feel he's, he's really significant to him, but what he could honour and respect was the Dharma that he discovered on the very night of his enlightenment. So that's what he decided to do. So this is really, really interesting, isn't it? And then Brahma Sahambhati turns up. The wonderful Brahma Sahambhati, we've got so much to be grateful for. He just turns up and he says, ranging his upper robe over one shoulder. He saluted the Blessed One with his hands before his heart. Isn't that lovely? His hands before his heart, the Anjali uh, Mudra, and said to him, so it is, Blessed One, so it is, well gone one. Those who were Arahants, rightly self-awakened ones in the past, so previous Buddhas, they too, dwelled in dependence on the very Dharma itself, 
honouring and respecting it. So, this is really something I think we can reflect on. That we can honour and respect the Buddha, we can honour and respect others who we know who have embodied the Dharma in their own lives to some extent. And that is a cause of happiness for us. If you adhere to the point of view that there's no one any better than you in the world, then according to the Buddha that's a cause of suffering. So it's worth reflecting on that, isn't it? It's really great to have people we can look up to. So, also um, another thing that occurred to me when I was reflecting on this sutta is that the very reason for faith in devotion in Buddhism, I think may be different from the reason for faith in devotion in other religions. I can't be too sure about this because I, to be honest, I don't know an awful lot about other religions. Um, but here's a very clear reason for faith in devotion. It's so that you can become what you've got faith in devotion in. Yeah, that very person that you have faith in devotion in. What Brahmin or contemplative can I dwell in dependence, honouring and respecting him? Is there anyone more virtuous than me? No. But if there were someone more virtuous than the Buddha, he would honour and respect them so that he could become like them. So that's the reason for faith in devotion in Buddhism. Yeah, it's so that what happens is when we feel this sense of garava towards someone, we open up to them. We are open to their influence and we become like them. So later on today, it was going to be Dianandi, it'll probably be me or someone else now, someone is going to lead us in a visualisation of the Buddha for this very reason, so that we can become a little bit more like the Buddha. So, now, that's the Gaurava Sutta. So, the Buddha has faith in devotion in the Dharma, even after his enlightenment. But what does that mean? What does it mean to honour and respect the Dharma? Because we need to know this, because this is what I'm hoping that we can do for the rest of the day. We can do what the Buddha did. We can honour and respect and feel faith in devotion, Garava, in the Dharma. This is what I'm hoping we'll bring about today. But what does it mean to do that? Does it mean having faith in devotion in the Threefold Way? Or the Four Noble Truths? Or the Eightfold Path? Or the Five Spiritual Faculties? Or any one of those formulations of the Dharma? It does, but I think it means something else as well. I think it means something a bit more principial. What are all these formulations of the Dharma based on? What is lying underneath it all? What's lying underneath all these formulations of the Dharma is a law. This is sometimes what the Dharma is translated as in Buddhist texts that have been translated into English. Sometimes you get law, L-A-W, that's the Dharma is the law. And that's a bit off-putting, isn't it? Because you can't help thinking about the law, you know, the police and judges and so on. But it doesn't mean law in that sense. It means law in the natural sense of like the law of gravity. Um, no, I can't drop that. Uh, what can I drop? Uh, I'll drop my keys. 
If I let go of these keys, you know what's going to happen to them, don't you? Yeah. Are they going to fly? Are they going to go up to the ceiling? Or they stay where they are? What's going to happen? We know, don't we? And that n never, ever will not happen as long as we're living here on the earth with gravity. It will always happen. So the law of gravity always happens. Yeah. And we know there are loads and loads of natural laws like that. So I bought this so I could make myself a cup of tea. Um, now I'm going to use a match. Now this is a match that's been used before. So if I strike it, what's going to happen? Oh, the end's come off. It's made a mess. It's not going to work, is it? But if I take another one, This has got a kind of brown end to it. What do you think is going to happen now if I do that? Ah. Yeah, that worked. What about if... Here's another one with a brown end. What about if I put it in water? What will happen now? Oh! <laughs> It defied some law there. <laughs> okay, now we've got a flame. Yeah, now that was all due to conditionality, wasn't it? It was all due to conditions. What about now? If I set some gas coming out of here. Mm -hmm. Now that was due to a, some kind of law, wasn't it? Now, if I put this on top of here. It's got some water in there. What is going to happen to that water now? It's going to get warm, isn't it? And then hot, and then it's going to boil. Yeah. So we'll see if that actually happens. I'm just going to leave it there. It's a bit like a magic show, isn't it? Okay. So the Dharma is based on just these things. Let's do another one. One last little thing. Here's a bell. And here's a hammer. What happens if I hit the bell on the hammer? Now that will always, always happen. Every time I hit that bell, it's going to make a sound, isn't it? Always happen. Will there any be any a time when I hit that bell and you get no sound? Hmm? You're in a vacuum. Okay. Okay. Or if I hold it like this, the bowl's cracked. Or if I hold it like this. You get a sound, but you don't get the same sound, do you? But now you do. So these are all natural laws that we're very, very familiar with, aren't they? And that is the Dharma. It's very, very simple. That is the Dharma. That's what the Dharma is based on. This is what the Buddha discovered. And we know this because if we go to another text, around the same time as the one I've just read you, I can find the beginning of it. Here we are. Thus have I heard. At one time the Lord was staying at Uruvela, same place, beside the river Nanjua, at the foot of the Bodhi tree. So he's in the same place, about the same time as the Garava Sutta, having just realised full enlightenment. At that time the Lord sat cross-legged for seven days, experiencing the bliss of liberation. We've just heard all that, haven't we? 
Then at the end of those seven days, the Lord emerged from that concentration and gave well-reasoned attention. So that line of thinking, it's another translation here, line of thinking, he reasoned, he reflected. Uh, gave well-reasoned attention during the first watch of the night, that's sometime in the middle of the night, to depend on the rising in forward order thus. This being, that becomes. From the arising of this, that arises. So, this being, that becomes. That becomes. From the arising of this, that's just another way of saying it, from the arising of this, that arises. Yeah? And then he came, he came out with a Udana. It's a lovely Udana. When things become manifest, to the ardent meditating Brahman, all his doubts vanish, since he understands each thing along with its cause. So that was the essence of the Buddha's enlightenment. He understands each thing along with its cause. He understands, in other words, how things come about. Then later on in the night, second watch of the night, he gave well-reasoned attention during the middle watch of the night independent arising in reverse order. Thus, this not being, that does not become. From the cessation of this, that ceases. So, this being, that becomes. From the ceasing of this, that ceases, yeah? From the ceasing of this, I wouldn't be able to light that flame there, yeah? So it's remarkably simple, isn't it? Remarkably simple. Then he gave another Udana. When things become manifest to the ardent meditating Brahmin, all his doubts then vanish, since he knows the utter destruction of conditions. And then a bit later on in the night, thinks again, and he thinks in both forward and reverse order, as it were. This being that becomes, uh, this being that is, from the arising of this, that arises. This not being, that is not. From the ceasing of this, that ceases. And then a final Udana. When things become manifest to the ardent meditating Brahman, he abides, scattering Mara's host like the sun, illumining the sky. It's a lovely one, isn't it? Much more... Um, Imaginal, that last one, less formulaic. He abides, scattering. Oh, can you see? What's happening? Steam. Oh, not quite broad yet. Thank you. That'll be another. Yeah. yeah. But we don't want to do that one. The ceasing of that, that ceases. <coughs> so it's really as simple as that. It's very, very simple. That, the whole Dharma is based on that. And one of the interesting things is the Buddha never ventures to tell us why that is so. Yeah? That's why when I have school visits and so on, I say to the kids, is Buddhism a religion? Is it a philosophy? And they all have different ideas, but it's none of those things. Yeah? The Buddha doesn't say why things happen the way they do. He has no theories about existence. All he says is, they do. 
Yeah? Whenever you strike a match, the flame comes. Yeah? When you put out the match, the flame goes. It's very, very simple. When you put a seed into the ground, as long as you have rain and light and the sun, it will sprout. Yeah? Um, if you put a stone into the ground, it won't sprout. So it's very, very simple. That looks like it's just about done, doesn't it? Yep, we've got boiling water. Now I've got a tea bag in here. So let's just turn the kettle off. I'm going to pour that into there. Now there's a tea bag in there. What do you think is happening in there now? Yeah, it's no longer clear water. Better put it back on there. It's all gone brown. There's a very soggy, hot tea bag. This is what the Dharma is. It's as simple as that. And we don't know why. Uh, Putting um, a flame underneath water heats the water. Well, we do, I suppose. I'm sure there are laws and so on, but it just happens like that. So that's what the Dharma is based on. That is the Buddha's big insight. And it's very, very simple, isn't it? But we need to be careful. Because Arnold, his closest friend, his closest companion, came bounding up to the Buddha one day, really excited. And having bowed down to the Blessed One, sat down to one side. And he was sitting there, he said to the Blessed One, it's amazing, Lord, it's astounding how deep this law is, this dependent co-arising, it's sometimes called, this conditionality is, how deep its appearance, and yet it seems to me as clear as clear can be. That seems like a pretty good statement, doesn't it? Because that's pretty clear, isn't it, how all that happens? I think some of you know the Buddha's answer to that, don't you? Have you heard what the Buddha said to that? Don't say that, Ananda. Don't say that. So he said it twice. Don't say that, Ananda. Don't say that. Deep is this dependent co-arising. And deep is appearance. It's because of not understanding and not penetrating this Dhamma that this generation is like a tangled skein. S-K-E-I-N. What is a skein, anybody know? Oh, ball of wool kind of thing. Okay, like a tangled ball of wool. A knotted ball of string. Like matted rushes and reeds. And does not go beyond rebirth. Beyond the plains of deprivation, woe and bad destinations. So what he's saying is, because we don't really understand the law of conditioned co-production, co-arising, we suffer. <laughs>